Welcome to In That Case. My name's Joel Townsend and this is my podcast about important pieces of public interest litigation which have shaped Australian life. You can find previous episodes of the podcast on the website at www.inthatcasepodcast.com and on Apple Podcasts and you can find me on Twitter at, at Townsend Joel C. I want to talk today about the case of Castles and the Secretary to the Department of Justice. This is a 2010 case and it touches on some really interesting issues relating to prisoners' rights, reproductive health and the Human Rights Charter in Victoria. So in November 2009, Kim Castles was sentenced to a period of imprisonment for some social security offending. And she, at the time, was undergoing IVF treatment. She'd had um, two previous children, uh, one much older, one who was then a couple of years old, and she wanted a younger sibling for her second child. But she found herself in prison and unable to continue to undertake her IVF treatment, and so immediately she began writing to Corrections Victoria and asking that she be permitted to continue her IVF treatment. And she got nowhere and eventually went and sought assistance from the Human Rights Law Resource Centre. And they wrote a number of letters on her behalf before finally, with the assistance of a pro bono private firm, they issued proceedings in the Supreme Court of Victoria and there was action taken seeking an interlocutory injunction, an injunction pending the hearing of the final appeal. And that injunction was refused in May of 2010 but then there was very soon afterwards a hearing of the uh, final argument in relation to Kim's assertion that she had a right to access IVF treatment while in prison. That was heard in June and a decision was handed down in July. And this was all happening on a very short time frame because Kim was turning 46 that December, December 2010. And that would be when she would become ineligible to receive IVF treatment. So argument in the court related to the question of whether Kim had a right to IVF treatment. There are rights guaranteed to prisoners in Victoria under the Corrections Act and Section 47 of the Corrections Act specifically refers to a prisoner's right to health and the question was whether this was a right this right to access IVF was a right falling within the scope of that. And there was a question as to whether the Secretary of the Department of Corrections was required to give her a permit to leave prison in order to undertake her IVF treatment. In the course of arguing that she had a right to IVF treatment as part of her right to health and a right to receive a permit to go and get that treatment, Kim relied on the Human Rights Charter in Victoria and so the case then became one which involved detailed discussion of what the content was of the right to equality in the Charter and the right to privacy in the Charter. Both really important rights and the question was do these rights extend as far as requiring Kim to be able to get IVF in the context of this statutory scheme created by the Corrections Act and the regulations.
So ultimately, Kim was successful. She was successful uh, in persuading uh, Justice Emerton of the Supreme Court that the right to health in the Corrections Act encompassed her right to reproductive health, in this case her right to receive IVF treatment. And she did receive IVF treatment. The case itself didn't turn on the question of whether the Charter of Human Rights affected the interpretation of that legislation, and that's because Justice Emerson found that the legislation on its face afforded Kim a right to IVF treatment. But it's been an important case in the years since as one of the first cases which really grappled with the question of the interpretive obligation in the Charter. So that's a provision in the Charter which says that as far as is possible, legislation in Victoria should be interpreted in a way consistent with human rights. It's a technically important case. It's an interesting case from a legal point of view, but it's also a really interesting human story. And I was lucky enough to be able to talk to uh, Kim about her experience and also to Rachel Ball, who was the lawyer at the Human Rights Law Resource Centre, as it then was, who represented Kim. And I started by talking to Kim a bit about her letter writing campaign. wanting a sibling for Stephanie. This was really about making sure that she didn't grow up as an as an only child. Is that right? Yes. Was that to some degree because of your experience with your first daughter having grown up as an only child that you wanted your, you know, yes, you wanted a Yes, exactly. Sibling? I didn't want to go down that track again and have the only child syndrome and had this one miss out. So I was dead certain to have another baby. I was just trying so hard. Yes, I was amazed that the prison let me send a lot of these letters because some of them, if they read them, they were sort of against them, saying I'm not getting any help here. And they let me photocopy these letters because I kept copies of everything. And, um, yeah, they let me post it all. I thought they'd go through it all and can it and stop it. So when I didn't hear anything, I thought, oh, they've stopped my letters. Um, Well, I was just so relieved that... Uh, I got listened to in the end and my all my letter writing in the middle of the night in prison when it's lonely and scary, it, it all came to something. It was worth it. It paid off. It was just... Um, and it, in a way, it helped me kill time too, if you can understand what I'm saying. It, it kept me occupied and busy and it gave me a purpose while I was in prison or otherwise I think I would have been affected more by my surroundings. And a lot of those letters you wrote when you were at the Dame Fellas Frost Centre, and so that was when Stephanie couldn't be with you. She didn't come to you till you were at Tarangau Prison. So perhaps all the more need to have something to occupy yourself with. Yes, definitely, because I was crying day and night because I didn't have her. See, I was still feeding, breastfeeding her, and for us to be separated like that, it was really hard on me. So, yeah, I missed her terribly. And um, if I didn't have the letter writing, it w- would have been a terrible thing. It was a d- good distraction and it gave me purpose to write the best I could and get the best out of my mind. 
Kim had been corresponding with um, Justice Health and and you then in the course of sort of January and February and into March of 2010 after after she'd come to you in, in late 2009, um, mm. uh, in the course of a series of letters you'd made demands on her behalf and it seems like that was quite a um, you persisted at that for some time and was this because you had expected them to come around to your point of view? Yeah, that's right. And they had um, fairly, they had indicated that um, that the issue was under active consideration, but months had passed upon the months that had passed when Kim had been writing to them directly and given the urgency of the issue, um, we were left with no choice but to issue proceedings on Kim's behalf. Um, but of course, that's never the preference. Um, people don't want to go to court if it can be avoided. So we tried really hard to deal with the issue directly without having to do that before, before we took those steps. When you were doing your original letter writing campaign, had you thought at all about what the options might be in terms of taking the matter to court? Well, um, I didn't seem to have any options. I had to just keep pushing. Um, I was the only way I could get the um, prison authorities to notice me, I guess, is if I went ahead and contacted the human rights and got something done because they weren't going to do anything and I'd written to the governor, I'd written to everyone I could and they were very good letters too. I had other people read them and couldn't believe how well written they were. But Kim's letter running campaign came to naught and she had to seek some help from the Human Rights Law Resource Centre. Do you recall anything of the lead up to that and um, how hard a decision that was to make? Well, I I had to make that decision because I wasn't getting anywhere and my age was uh, working against me too. So I had to get things going and I had to use whichever means I could and um, get help wherever I could. And so I just had to keep pushing the Human Rights Law Resource Centre became involved. Can you tell me how you you came to make contact with them? Well, I wasn't getting anywhere with all my letters, so I think I was directed to a legal aid service in Fitzroy, I think, and they referred me on to the Human Rights and gave me a contact. Yeah, sure. At the time, there was a small organization which isn't um, which isn't around anymore called the prisoners rights legal service and um, someone from the prisoners rights legal service got in touch with the human rights law center about her case um, I'm not sure how they came to know about it she may have just written to them directly but I, I can't remember um, and just told us what was going on and asked if the HRLC would be able to assist her. At 
the same time as she was dealing with the challenges of commencing this litigation, Kim was dealing with the realities of raising a child in prison and also with the consequences of having had to cease her IVF medication. There was um, about another four or five uh, children in prison with us, yes. Not too many, but yeah. So reading the judgment, it sounds as though you worked really hard with Stephanie to try to make sure that she experienced as normal an early childhood as she possibly could uh, in those years. Yes, definitely. I made sure that I could exercise all my rights with her that I could, and that was taking her to childcare. And um, uh, like a kinder, a young kinder, she went to a couple of days a week. So I made sure she did that, and I had to go and escort her to kinder at the beginning of the day, then pick her up at the end of the day, which gave me a lot of time to do letter writing and what I needed to do with my case. Um, and uh, so, so it's interesting that you know, notwithstanding that there were other mothers and children there, that there wasn't wasn't much of an understanding, by the sounds of it, of your desire to have another child and to um, to expand your family. Well, um, because I already had two, even though they were twenty four years apart, they said you've had your two, you've had your moment of glory, what do you want another one for? You know, they couldn't understand. I, I wanted one for this but child. I didn't want her growing up on her own like the first one had. And people, you know, they're just interested in their own business. They weren't really caring what my plight was. My problem was too, um, you can't be on that kind of medication and just go off it too. That was something that was upsetting. I was heavily on hormones trying to get ready to do another cycle and they were cut off and I was sent to prison and it's just like going off heart medication. You can't just go off strong hormones like that and that's what I was trying to get across. I need my medication. You can't just cold turkey me off this stuff, which affected me, if you can understand. And there's a sense when you look at the chronology that there are letters from Kim in November and December, from you in January and February and March, and then um, just sort of jumping ahead, there's then the interlocutory hearing before Justice Osborne in late April, decision in May, mm. then uh, um, uh, in June there's a hearing before Justice Emerton and a decision is rendered in that um, in that case on the 9th of July. And all of this is leading mm. towards... 9 December 2010, which is when Kim hits 46 and becomes ineligible uh, for IVF. So is this is this pressing on your mind as you're doing this? Yeah, time is absolutely critical, um, and and was one of the the main drivers. I mean, when you look back at it, um, you might reflect, oh, perhaps we should have we should have gone to court earlier, um, but we were trying really hard to resolve the issue directly with, with Justice Health. Um, and then once it was in court, we we emphasised the importance of, um, of deciding the matter and, and getting Kim um, into treatment if possible, as soon as possible. 
the other the other reflection that I had at the time and which may account for the um, or in some way for the length of the proceedings was that there seemed to be real concern on the part of the government about the precedential value of allowing Kim to access this treatment. Um, and so all the points along the way were hard fought um, and on my understanding, at least in part for that reason. And I think that was something that Kim was really up against um, every every step of the way, not necessarily what um, it would mean if she were able to access IVF, but what the implications might be more broadly if there was an expectation that all prisoners um, could get IVF whenever they wanted to, um, which wasn't the which wasn't the decision, which in the end turned on um, the specific facts of the the case. But I think it was also problematic for Kim that it was approached in that way because um, the the rights that she had, both under the Charter and um, under the Corrections Act, while subject to you know principles of reasonableness and proportionality in different ways um, were should have should have really been front and center did you did you try to come to groups with that very complex set of principles that the lawyers were talking about it was quite uh, mind-boggling and heavy at the time but I was so attuned to it all I could understand what was going on The first part of Kim's litigation was an application for an injunction requiring the Secretary to the Department of Justice to give her access to IVF, and I asked her about her recollections of that unsuccessful effort. So do you have distinct recollections of the, the two stages that things went through, the initial application to try to get the injunction and then the, and then the second stage where you got the the final decision from Justice Emerton? Uh, I do remember it, yes. Um, the first stage, not as much, but the second stage, because I was living in prison and it was very hard um, getting along with other people there too because no one could understand what I was going through and my age too, they said, I'll give it up, get, get a hobby, do knitting. And it was hard to fight that too because I knew what I wanted. Yeah, I mean, I think the the issues were discussed, and the sense I got was that they were considered, but um, but the decision in the end was that it was just better to properly resolve the issues and expedite the full hearing um, rather than grant the injunction. The decision of Justice Emerton in the end was that the section of the Corrections Act which conferred on Kim as a prisoner a right to health gave her a right to undergo IVF treatment for her infertility. 
the case didn't turn, as I indicated earlier, on the application of the Charter or its interpretive obligation. It didn't turn on any of the discussion about the content of human rights, like the right to equality and the right to privacy. I asked both Kim and Rachel Ball about their experience of getting the decision and their reflection on the case. Well, I was video linked to that because I remember my face dropped when we won. I was in shock and I just looked at my solicitor and dropped my mouth in shock that we'd won and I couldn't believe it. And I remember going out into the yard in the prison and uh, showing how happy I was and everyone could see we'd had a win and it felt so surreal for us to win against the big guns. It was amazing. One reflection that I had at the time was that even though the decision didn't turn on the charter in the end, I did feel that it was useful ultimately to have brought the charter arguments because it was an opportunity to put before the court a whole lot of information about the impact of um, of the decision on Kim um, on her human rights and to try and attach that to some basic standards of what we expect for people um, and the ability to have those conversations and bring that evidence in court was was valuable um, and the particularly the discussion about the right to humane treatment in detention my feeling was um, that informed the interpretation of the Corrections Act or at least some of the kind of background thinking um, behind that in the end. Castle's case, of course, was not just a case about prisoners, not just a case about human rights. It was a case also about women and reproductive health. Kim talked to me a little about her experience of IVF following the decision. You'll hear that, and then after that, you'll hear Rachel Ball putting the case in context for me, talking about gender and reproductive health as key issues emerging from the case. Did you have subsequent difficulty after the case in getting the prison to honour your right to go and have that IVF treatment? Did they cause any further difficulties for you? Um, surprisingly, they didn't, and everything seemed to go into... Um, oh, it just went to plan after that. They didn't seem to stop it, but um, they... they Prison officers were very helpful with the medication because everything had to be thrown into, you know, plan and order and I had to have medication. I had to start a cycle again and have medication and everyone seemed to help out. They didn't seem to block me in any way and then I had to be escorted into the city to have it all done and um, back out again. Yeah, I felt sort of like a queen being driven into town and looked after and accommodated and yeah it was a bit surreal actually it happening because I never thought it would I thought they'd just humour me forever and let me rot but yeah it all happened. From memory one of the briefs that was prepared 
um, in the early days uh, when Kim had begun requesting treatment, referred to IVF as a lifestyle choice, which, you know, for anyone who has even the faintest understanding of what IVF entails um, is a gross mischaracterization of what it's like for women who go through it um, and the and the implications uh, of, of either accessing or not access, accessing IVF. Um, so I think you're, you're right. It does call out for a pretty rigorous gender analysis and the decision can't be separated from the, the um, initial decision not to allow Kim to access the treatment or to fail to respond to her requests can't be separated from the fact that these were requests relating to sexual and reproductive health for women. There are particular restrictions which apply to um, access to IVF, and they're reflected to some degree in the course of um, Kim's case because one of the questions was, you know, will she meet the relevant criminal record checks? Have you followed at all Mm. that issue in the years since? Because uh, as I understand it, it remains the case that Victoria is extremely restrictive in terms of um, the way in which it controls access to IVF. Yeah, exactly. And um, I did see it come up again in the papers not long ago, I think in the last couple of weeks. Um, In Kim's case, the requirement for the criminal record checks slowed things down yet again at a pretty critical time um, and I can only imagine what um, what other implications it might have for people across Victoria. This requirement, which as I understand it, was a political compromise at the time and really isn't a justifiable limit on access to IVF for people in Victoria. The case made Kim something of a public figure, a media figure, and that had both its upsides and its downsides, as she discussed with me. And she and Rachel reflected on the case and how they felt about it. It brought back some good memories over talking about this. Um, I had a lady in prison with me that was going home uh, for home detention and she didn't have anywhere to live. And I said, I offered her my house because I knew I couldn't use it straight away. And um, she was um, at my house and rang me in prison and said, you're on television. I can't believe it, you're on television. I said, what? I didn't even know any of this was happening. I didn't know we'd hit the the media. And yeah, that was amazing (laughs) to tell me that from my house. (laughs) Yeah, so she said, you're famous, you're famous. And I said, what are you talking about? And then, yeah, it was regular, sort of, after that. Um, It was very surreal, but also very frightening because I had uh, jealous inmates um, watching everything I was doing and I was copying it because I was getting attention and they weren't and it made it hard because I was living in prison with my baby too. So I had to protect her and every time I went on to the TV or anything, I had to get someone to look after her that I could trust. And that wasn't easy in there. So it's quite an important case from the point of view of human rights law in Victoria. So is this something that you've thought about much in the years since? And is it is it something that 
other people have talked to you about? Um, well, I, how do I put this? I keep it quiet, actually, because I don't want people to know I've been in prison, So, because I don't want to be judged. And um, I, yeah, I don't really, only close sort of family members and friends that know about it I've, I've talked to since then. But I was proud that I was able to change the course of history. I, I felt good about that and making it now possible for women in prison to undertake IVF treatment. Well, I mean, this for me, um, this was, I felt really lucky to have been involved in this case. And the main reason, as I saw it then and as I see it now, is that I had the opportunity to work with Kim, who I think, you know, a lot of people put time and effort into this, but she was absolutely the hero of this case. What she went through and what she fought for was quite extraordinary. I think she was in really difficult circumstances and she was so strong throughout at, at really great personal risk um, and and sacrifice. And what she's done, um, at least as I understand it and the way the case has been used subsequently in Victorian courts, has had follow-on implications in all sorts of areas that you never would have expected at the time. But but nothing good that came of that, that case would have been able to happen without her strength and the courage that she had um, when when she went through it and, and continued throughout to to um, to stay involved. That Kim Castles has endurance, has persistence, is shown not only by her pursuit of this piece of litigation, but also by, as she told me, uh, her long efforts to try to conceive another child. And I asked her about that. Did you end up able to have another child? Uh, well, not through um, the IVF treatment in jail, that uh, prison, that, that didn't work, the two attempts we had there, and then um, my age worked against me, and I, by the time I turned 46, legislation stopped me using my own eggs, so I then had to look for a donor, and eventually we found a donor, and I now have a two-year-old baby, so it was all worth it, and I just say never give up, because she is so worth it. Wow. Can, uh, what's, what's your younger child's name? Her name is Nellie Charlotte, and she's just the miracle that we were looking for, and all this persistence has paid off. It really has. It's an extraordinary coda to an extraordinary story about the way in which one person's involvement in a piece of litigation can shape laws and social practices which in turn have a really substantial impact on the lives of people across society. I've really enjoyed talking about the Castles case and I hope you've enjoyed listening. 
You can once again find past episodes on Apple Podcasts and at my website, which is at www.inthatcasepodcast.com. You can find me on Twitter at, at TownsendJoelC, and I'll look forward to talking to you on the next episode of In That Case. Mm-hmm.